1: Thank you, Ben. And this is Tony LeGrecker, and this is Courage to Hope. And tonight we have a guest, Jeff Chasen. And Jeff is uh, involved with a addiction center opened by Friends to Meet Recovery in the town of Norwell. Welcome, Jeff. Hello, hello, gentlemen, and hello uh, to the world. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me on. Well, thank you for making yourself available, Jeff. And I was reading a little bit about your 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 history. And could you give us a little history about yourself first before we get into the recovery <clears throat> center?
0: Well, when I was one years old, no, I'm just kidding. Um yeah. yeah, I'm I'm 38. Um recovery has been something that I've been um trying to find since I was uh the ripe age of 17 years old. And um I don't know if that's necessarily uncommon. Um, back then, I feel like it was a lot more uncommon. As I was one of a handful of teenage, um, you know, teenage kids in the South Shore um, attending some of the twelve-step fellowship uh, meetings um, that I was attending, um, which pretty quickly brought me to um, kind of seeking out, you know, more young people and finding them uh in the city at different um, meetings that were uh earmarked specifically for young people. Um and there, you know, the rooms were filled um <clears throat> with, you know, people in their late teens, early teens, 20s, early and early, mid and late, um, you know, good cross-section of people my age now that um I kind of understood why <laughs> why they were hanging on to the to the young people's meetings now that I'm pushing 40. Um but you know, um, going back even further, how I kind of ended up in AA. It, it, I'm sorry, please uh, excuse my my slip. So well, let me AA. let
1: me ask oh. you this: when when did you take your first drink? How old were you? Try to have been uh, twelve or thirteen years old, and and where my, was your source of alcohol from?
0: Um, I believe uh, one of my buddies had stolen it from their parents. My parents were both uh, sober. And, um, my father's been sober my entire life and my mother, um, as well, though she passed, uh, about eight years ago, uh, she passed with 36 years of sobriety and whatever 36 plus eight is, is how long my dad's going today. Um, they, they were great parents, uh, that raised me well, plenty of, plenty of opportunity and, and, you know, presence and support. You know, I did not, you know, in the nature of our uh, um, you know the nurture versus uh, nature, envi- you know, environmental versus you know whatever it is argument. You know, I I certainly had a great environment, and um, you know though there there was some you know early childhood trauma, um, it didn't come from you know my family or from from my upbringing, um, you know, and I'm grateful for that. Um, however, in elementary school, I started getting pulled from class uh, because. Pretty consistently, I was a disruption in class. I was acting out. I was, you know, looking for attention. Any any chance I could get, negative attention was certainly much easier to come by. Um, and I got, you know, I got myself plenty of it. So, um, you know, that the testing came and and the diagnoses came and um, the medications came. And as far as my adolescent mind went the way i processed and understood things was that you know all these all these adults are unhappy with me um and if i want them to be happy with me i got to take this medicine and it's going to you know fix or change whatever's whatever's what, wrong with me what
1: kind of medicine did they
0: put you on at first it was ritalin um and then when you know the trouble continued and the disruptions continued i started to kind of get hip to You know, if I said A, B, and C in my session with my doctor or uh, my psychologist, um, you know, the old pen pad would come out at the end, you'd scribble something down, and hand a piece of paper to my parents, and I'd be on either a higher dose or a new medication. And then, of course... you you doing alcohol with the Ritalin? No, at this point, I'm in fourth grade, uh, elementary school, you know, very young. And that pattern of continuing to be a disruption, continuing to have issues behaviorally, um, you know, that continued over the next couple of years. um, And as a result of my, um, you know, inability to kind of process things the right way, the medications increased, the medications changed. And by junior high, I'm watching a health video, you know, back in the old dare days about the dangers of drugs and a, a snippet of the video showed that people were you know crushing up prescription pills and snorting them through straws and you know I don't know if this was a conscious thought or a subconscious thought but you know I I must have thought to myself gee that's that's what I'm doing wrong I'm not you know crushing it up and snorting it so in 7th grade as a uh 12 12 year old young man a uh, young boy I started to do that and it wasn't it wasn't a social thing it wasn't Giving into peer pressure, um, it, it was just something that I thought I should do, and then it became something I thought I had to do. Um, so that first drink you talk that you asked me about, by the time I finally had that drink, um, what I experienced from it was a liberation from. Um, being upset by the fact that all the adults in my life were unhappy with me, and that the you know school was unhappy with me, and the teachers were unhappy, and the guidance counselors were, you know, scratching their heads, and you know I'm in trouble again. And and I did deeply care that I was such a, a such a trouble <laughs> everywhere I went. I didn't want to be. And, and when I drank for the first time, it it made me cease to really care about that. And God, did I fall in love with that sensation. Um, And, you know, from there, um, it was pretty difficult for me to drink. Um, My parents being, you know, being sober and members of 12-Step Fellowships, um, you know, when kind of the normal teenage hijinks kind of occurred from that point on, I was always met with a strong um, redirection by my my parents. There were times... um, you know, in my high early high school years, where I would quite literally come out of a blackout and be at an AA meeting on a on a Monday night because I skipped you know I skipped school at lunch and I you know went out with the old you know the seniors and I drank and they thought it was funny to get me all wound up and you know I, I would uh, keep drinking and I, I really had no breaks on um, on control and you know. Today, when I when I teach others that are seeking recovery about addiction, um, I, I've been taught and, and share myself that people like myself have an allergy to alcohol. And, you know, if you define an allergy, it's defined as, a, as an abnormal or irregular reaction. And, you know, quote unquote, normal people will drink alcohol and, and be able to set it down when they choose to set it down. Um, they don't experience an abnormal reaction. When I drink alcohol, I do in the form of I crave more, I can't decide or predict every time I drink when I'm going to stop drinking or how much um, I'm going to consume. And then when I am in a state of of being stopped, um, I can't stay stopped because of uh, because of an obsessive nature. About feeling that sense of comfort um, that comes from drinking, and and there's been periods in my life where I've been sober, um, sometimes for for you know many years, and when I don't take care of myself, um, I get obsessed with feeling comfortable, and I seek that comfort uh, in you know in my job, in my workplace, I seek it uh, in relationships, I seek it in society with you know status or whatever, uh, the type of clothing I wear, you know, the the types of places I go and I get it a little bit. Um, but I don't quite get it the way that I get it from alcohol. And when those kind of empty promise unsustainable things fail me inevitably, um, I have a brain that will just revert back to, Hey, you know, you know where the real comfort is. It's, it's in the bottle, you know, bottom of a bottle of whiskey, go get after it. Um, so I have had long periods of sobriety that have ended with relapse, um, so and it's a what, pretty common thing.
1: What What you said earlier was that you were going to AA when you were in high in high school, right? Yes. Um, yeah, so, um, so and and it said in your article that, that the paper said that you were in uh, four different schools in high school. Did yes. your parents move, or did they kick you out of the schools and you had to find a new school? How did
0: that work? Great question. So the first, the first thing was, um, you know, it was a combination of circumstance. Um, My father incurred a pretty serious back injury, um, you know, was laid up at the same time summer was nearing to an end. And I had shown my parents their, you know, literal worst nightmare of having, you know, having a child with, with as bad of a substance use problem as I did that, that very early on, the defiance, the rebellion—you um, know—was in full full swing. Uh, we we have a condo uh, in Old Orchard Beach, Maine, and you know, maybe they were thinking geographical cure. Maybe they were thinking, let's just get out of town for a little while and see if we can figure this out. Um, but with only a few weeks left in the summertime. Um, I came home to hear that we were kind of uprooting and we we were going to move to Maine, and you know they thought a fresh start and a new chance, and and also it was requested by uh, Silver Lake uh, Regional High School where uh, where I attended up until that summer, <clears throat> that I, that I don't come back. Um, so up we moved to Maine, and and I did have a fresh start. I did have a great opportunity. Um, but I was too kind of blinded by resentment of of being uprooted um and in, in anger um that i I made it my mission to kind of make my parents regret, um, you know, putting me through that. and and in reality, my perception, um you know, was so flawed, you know, what they were trying to put me through was you know, a new beginning and a chance to um to turn things around. and i I, I was incapable of seeing it that way uh from there it really only took me about 4 months to um to to bring things to a point where the school was asking my parents to seek some sort of alternative schooling for me uh back in Pembroke where we still owned a house um the house was not selling the market was not good at that time <coughs> so um just as quickly as we moved up there we found ourselves moving back to Pembroke and uh, my parents found um schooling for me at the South Shore Charter School, uh, which at the time was um on in Hull right on Nantasket Beach and that kind of dilapidated uh gray cement looking uh, building there with the blue trim um and I really liked that school um I I, I did I feel um kind of calmed down a little bit uh, entering into that school and um, by the end of the school year you know these problems I had that weren't really being effectively treated um, kind of started to take over again and and, um, things took a different direction. Um, You know I made friends, I gravitated towards um, you know kids that that smoked pot and, and drank on the weekends and um, you know, had low self-esteem and were insecure like I was. Um, they were they were pretty easy to make friends with. Um, and, you know, as a result of making those choices, I found myself drinking and, and smoking pot and, and using some other drugs um, to the extent where, you know, I lost grasp of kind of wanting to turn things around and, and try to apply myself in school. And by the end of my, now we're only in my sophomore year of high school, um, the school was, was turning around and, and telling my parents I was not welcome back in the fall um, to begin my junior year. Uh, my parents at that point really caring, being good people and, and being resourced, um, they reached out to an educational psychologist or an educational specialist who did do an e- eval. Um, And through the recommendations of them, they found me a wilderness survival program for delinquent youths in the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina. Most of my peers there were dragged out of their beds and zip tied in the middle of the night and quite literally tossed into vans and and driven off while, you know, kicking and screaming. Um, I was tricked into going on a business trip with my dad. Um, That's where I thought I was going and what I thought I was doing. And, um, you know, it wasn't until pretty much the last minute that I learned um, that's not (laughs) where I was heading. And um, at this program, which has since been uh, closed down due to class action lawsuits by families, um, the quickest you could complete the program was 28 days. They did have some sort of partial custody of me. So for my parents to change their minds and Pull me out of it, it would have been quite the process. Um, And the average to leave was about 32 days. And it took me 48 days to complete the program. And for every one of those days, I slept on a very thin mat on the ground. Um, Five days a week, we hiked to a new site and set up a new site. It was all low impact camping. Um, We would have a weekend layover where we'd be visited by a psychologist and kind of checked in on and, and you know have someone to talk to um, but for the most part the days were a lot of work um, and I did actually quite um, take to the program pretty well and by the end of it I didn't want to kind of come back out into the world and uh, I often think back and joke you know how different my life would have been if I stayed on the Appalachian Trail um, but ultimately um, I left and returned through, through um, my my parents kind of pleading with the charter school, they they did allow me to start my junior year there uh, because I, uh, they had taken this drastic action and I had completed this program over the course of the summer. Um, that was September of 2001, uh, when the 9-11 attacks occurred in New York and throughout the country. <clears throat> and I, um, you know, I, I don't blame that. Um, but I, had, I right before that, I had, I had made a bad decision to uh, smoke pot before school one day, um, and then I feel like that event kind of destabilized me even more, just seeing what was going on in society and, and the fear around it, um, and I quickly jumped back into drinking and, and using drugs from there and found myself uh, getting uh, administratively uh, expelled from that school. So that was number three. You did
1: graduate from high school somewhere, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I could spend. I could spend most of the time just talking. Yeah, we about, don't have
1: to get into that. But what was the final school that you graduated from?
0: <clears throat> so that that event, that expulsion, actually um, brought me to um, to to a twelve step fellowship for the first time and, and daily attendance of meetings. Um, I wasn't quite. Um, I didn't quite think I belonged there just yet, and I hadn't quite made the. Um, the admission that I, you know, was an alcoholic. uh, But nonetheless, I'm attending these meetings um, to kind of keep the heat off my back. And, you know, there's a saying, once you hear the truth, you can't unhear it. Um, On a pretty daily basis, I started to get um, a dose of truth, not from people talking about me, but from people talking about themselves and and me identifying. Um, So I, I ended up after about eight months of, you know, really kind of going back and forth and, you know, chronically relapsing, not being able to put more than a month together, um, I finally entered into my first long period of sobriety. And, and during all that time, I went to Middleborough Night School and uh, be- before that, Marshfields Night School. Um, so my, my high school career was Silver Lake, Old Orchard Beach, Maine. South Shore Charter, Marshfield Night School, and I graduated from uh, Middleborough Night School with a diploma on time, uh, class of two thousand three.
1: Very good. And then somewhere along the way, after high school, you get it. um, You go. You go back on it again because it says there for a period of time
0: you were you were homeless.
1: What, yeah, age,
0: so what age were you, did that happen? Seven, 17 to 20. Um, I was sober. Things were looking up. I even um, attended Cape Cod Community College for a little while. Uh did about three semesters there. I, I passed more classes than I failed, but I didn't, I didn't <laughs> stick with it. I went to work at my, my father's company that he had started with my uncle um, and you know liked working and entered into the work you know the workforce for the first time in my life and then right before my 21st birthday I I managed to um, you know do what alcoholics do and and in the wake of all the data that I had I still managed to convince myself that I was not an alcoholic and that I could drink and it would be okay Um, so that set me into almost a two-year period of relapse where the you know, the substances I was using, um, kind of got more severe. Uh, the drinking became, uh, continuous at points. Uh, my family, you know, tried the, uh, the tough love act and and took guidance from people in in different fellowships that, you know, that, that deal with, um, you know, trying to, to, to (laughs) navigate through a loved one's substance use disorder. Um, and you know, the crowd the couch surfing kind of began. And I found myself landing in, in having a, you know, a safe refuge in a, in a house that had no electricity. Um, you know, had no uh, no adults. you know, it was just a bunch of uh, teenagers and and you know, I was kind of the oldest kid of the group at at 21 um and you know we were just kind of squatting in this house um you know living there with no electricity selling drugs out of it using drugs on a daily basis drinking you know from when i would come to until when i would pass out um you know then the arrests um, and run ins with the law happened and at one point i was uh on unsupervised probation for a couple of things and you know if i had kind of managed to stay under the radar that would go away and it would get dismissed after a period of time. But due to my drinking, I couldn't stop myself from, you know, having these close scrapes and and it was looking like I was going to kind of violate the terms, um, you know, of, of that uh, probation. And, and I, you know, I ended up doing it and, you know, the fear of imprisonment, the fear of, you know, worse problems didn't stop me uh, from drinking. Um, And, at that point, after having a period of sobriety, kind of getting a taste of you know the good life, if you will, um, and then falling from it, um, I was pretty convinced, you know, through my own kind of broken broken thinking that I that I couldn't find, you know, I would never be able to find my way back into recovery, and that I was just going to have to kind of make you know make the best out of a bad situation and and go on as long as I could go on, you know, losing the support of my family. Um, you know, and, and not being able to really process the bigger picture of that, um, you know, that that really drove me deeper into things. And um, if you lined up all the consequences in a row, you know, the, the thing that alcohol and, and the other substances I was doing did to me was, you know, was really make me just not care at all. And, you know, a combination of not caring and not thinking I could find my way back uh, was a pretty dark place to be in. Um, I could talk next about what what brought me back into recovery and, and brought me into um, almost a nine-year period of sobriety next, if you'd like. <clears throat> yeah, I would. I'm, I was going to
1: ask you, though, did you have a, a driver's license and a car during this period of time?
0: Um, I did. Um, I did until the believe the car got repossessed if I, if I remember correctly. Um, and you know, my father certainly had the resources to, um, to stop that from happening, but seeing how out of control and and dangerous I was at the time, he, um, I think he, I believe he, uh, he let it go. And, uh, of course, you know, that made me, uh, angry, you know, I couldn't see you know, my broken perception. I couldn't see it for what it was, which was a blessing, you know, and, probably stopped me from killing myself or killing other people, you know, through drunk driving. Well, I was going to
1: say that's, he did the right move at the time. You know, that was a blessing, but I you know you yeah. didn't feel that way at the time. You were probably totally angry with him. Yeah. You know. So now you so go through we, this period of, um, I was going to ask you, what was the name of the place that you actually went in the recovery center that that got you straightened out? Where
0: was that? So from 17 to 20, I actually didn't, I didn't go to treatment. Um, I just went to a 12-step fellowship and um, a gentleman named Josh, who um, became a very close family friend, um, you know, of not just myself, but of my my whole family. um, He had been watching me kind of flop around and flounder at meetings for about eight months, not really being able to catch any type of traction. And this guy had come in and at 90 days sober, his, his mother was diagnosed with, uh, you know, with, with cancer. And I believe not even three months later had, had passed from it. Um, and I had watched him, you know, talk about his pain and process it and lean on the support of people, um, at the meetings. Cause, you know, though I would go to, you know, seven or eight different meetings throughout the course of of a week, I would see a lot of the same people there. Um, you know, across the whole South shore, you know, it's, it's a small, small community. Um, and I, I watched his story kind of unfold and on the night of his one year anniversary, um, I got up and I think I, I, I fraudulently fraudulently got a, a 30 or a 60 day chip because, um, I'd smoked pot earlier that day, um, you know, and didn't consider myself sober, but didn't want to, uh, You know embarrass myself or go back and get another 24-hour chip again you know and he saw right through it and saw that i was still pretty bound up and messed up and after his anniversary he came he like beelined it for me and said um you know hey kid before you die why don't you let me sponsor you and take you through the 12 steps and i had gone to meetings that were called 12-step meetings and I thought I had done the steps. And, you know, I told him that as almost a, you know, a rebuttal, like, no, I'm, I'm okay. I've gone to those meetings and and they didn't, they didn't work. And and he laughed at me, which I didn't like. And he said, that's not, that's not going through the 12 steps. If, if you want to meet me uh, tomorrow, we can sit down and I can read this book to you and I can show you something different. And that word different, um, coupled with a combination of him wanting to spend time with me outside of a meeting and and the respect I had for him seeing what he had persevered through during that year. Um, I said, okay. And I walked away from that situation, uh, pretty hopeful. And, um, I did not need treatment medically. Um, and, at the age I was, it would have been pretty challenging um, to find even a treatment center for somebody that was not um, of 18 years of age. There wasn't there wasn't too much in Massachusetts then, and I believe there's even less uh, in Massachusetts right now uh, due to some closures of some adolescent programs. So um, I didn't need treatment then, but when I was uh, 22 years old, I did go to tr- I did go the treatment route. Um, and I've I've gone that route since um after relapsing after almost a nine-year period of sobriety and entering into the period of sobriety I'm in now. Was that Josh
1: Williams or a different Josh?
0: Different Josh. Um uh, ironic. His name was Josh Benton, and uh he lives with his family out in Connecticut. His wife is Sarah Allen Benton, who um has written some books um about um, you know, this this the subject that we're talking about today. Um, and I believe has a PhD and, uh, I'm not sure in what gonna Be be mad at me for forgetting, but, um, you know, he, Josh, um, has opened, opened some programs and worked in treatment, which has been inspirational to me, Josh, Josh B, not Josh W. And, um, he was my sponsor for, you know, for a very long time. Okay.
1: So now let's move up to, let's say when you were, um, in your late twenties, early thirties. Is that during the nine year period that you were sober?
0: Yes, it was uh, 22 to 31. And that period of sobriety began um, with a a stay at, uh, it was then owned by a company called Cab uh, Danvers. And I did not have health insurance. I had to call around and find myself what's called a DPH bed, a free bed through the Department of Health's funding. Um, and in detox, I knew I didn't have a home to go back to. Um, so, this idea of of further treatment uh, was pretty was pretty vital uh, to me, you know, because I certainly couldn't go back to this you know this this crack house i had been living in with with no electricity and and these kids that you know though i was close with and it wouldn't take me long to to fall right back into you know doing the things and living you know living the life i was living so myself along with the other 70 patients there you know we all needed further treatment and the options were pretty slim um coupled with how overloaded the caseloads where of the case managers um, working at this facility um you know they they experience what you know what I refer to as compassion fatigue at a pretty high rate so I would be pleading with these people you know and they're they're watching the clock waiting for their shift to end and you know the the task at hand is they gotta you know they gotta send out you know dozens of referrals to the different next step, you know, facilities around the state, and they have to send the dozens of referrals out for, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of people that all need the same thing that are at the facility at the same time. Uh, Meanwhile, through, you know, through the reimbursement rates, um, you know, of the Medicaid system at that point, which these systems, um, you know, Survive off of coupled with some, you know, access to different grants and state money. Um, you know, these people were getting paid, you know, either minimum wage or slightly above, or were, you know, were interns um, that were seeking clinical licenses that would literally work for free as part of their, you know, part of their schooling. Um, the system was broken then. And I remember wandering off of the detox ward and somehow finding myself in the administrative um, the, the administrative offices of the detox, I had a blanket wrapped around me, cold sweats shivering. You would have thought I was you know withdrawing from from opioids or, or you know something similar. Um, but I had managed to um, you know, drink to the to the extent that my body you know was was really just in rough shape and shutting down. And I wandered down this hallway barefoot and saw an open door and a placard that said vice president and went into this guy's office. Like just, you know, what a, what a sight I must've been and, and begged this guy to help me um, get to the next, the next step in treatment. And, Um, I don't know what he said to my case manager, but she was, you know, the papers were flying around her desk and, you know, she was doing everything she could to get me a, get me a bed in the next, the next stop. And, and uh, luckily they did. Um, Next stop was um, called Lynn TSS on green street in Lynn uh, next to the Ryan halfway house. And at that time, I think it was about six months later that, the city of Lynn condemned the property that my uh, TSS was in, you know, my holding where I, where I went for a number of months. Um, And think for a second, how bad a property must be um, in in the city of Lynn for, you know, for the city to condemn it It was a pretty, pretty rough stop by the end of my stay there. uh, I believe I was there for 90 days by the end of those 90 days, I could tell the difference between um, a mouse, a rat, or a cockroach based on the sound it made while it scampered across the room. And, you know, I was confined to to a small, you know, single family, um, you know, converted triple decker that was converted to a you know a single single use occupancy, um, you know facility, if you want to use that word. Um, you know that was again staffed by people that um you know probably really regretted applying to the job to work there and you know was constantly at full capacity and did not have the funding to put back into um you know the the building and the staff to to create a reasonable quality of care establishment um to the extent that it was later condemned and and you know, Remodeled, And I, I don't know if it ever reopened, um, but it was pretty rough there. But I managed to make some good decisions ar- around the people I gravitated towards, you know, rather than gravitate towards the same type of kids I did in high school. You know, this guy's over here reading his Bible. Um, this guy's, you know, over here doing something else while everyone else is, you know, playing cards and picking on staff and picking on each other. Um you know, I made some decisions to kind of gravitate towards the, to you know, I guess the right people and and managed to to get through that. And in reality, if I was to leave there on a bad day, uh, my choices were take a left and go to a crack house or take a right and go to a dope house, you know, and I'm in a kid from Pembroke fish out of water in the city of Lynn, you know, I really, leaving, you know, wasn't an option to me. I had to get to the next step, which was entry into a state funded halfway house. The list of state halfway houses, though it was pretty, um, you know, pretty long, um, you know, as I've kind of described this uh, conveyor conveyor belt, you know, this assembly line of people moving down, um, you know, you, you can imagine all of these state funded halfway houses uh, were also filled to capacity, filled to the brim, except for a couple. And this one in particular that was called the South Shore House, which, you know, seemed very in- inviting, warm, and open to a, to a kid like myself from the South Shore. They had, you know, a dozen open beds. And when I asked um, my peers at this, you know, at this halfway house, I mean, at this uh, this holding, why this halfway house had, so, you know, and these are kids that had been in and out of programs for, you know, number of years, you know, they had the drop on everything. They said, "Oh no, you don't want to go there, man. you're gonna you know, it's real tough. You're gonna get kicked out. They don't let you do this. They don't let you have a cell phone. They don't let you do this. And in the back of my mind, and I'm thinking to myself, if this kid doesn't want to go there, this is probably the place I want to go, <laughs> you know. And um yeah. I went on my interview there, and it's a bag a bags packed interview. um if if they tell you you're you're welcomed, um, you stay. Um, and I really like the sound of that, you know, getting out of where I was. So, off I went on this interview, and some of the horror stories I had heard about the interview process at this place, I was told they make you stare out a window. And if you if you look at any of the people that are talking to you and interviewing you and asking you questions, um, they consider it um you know a breach of kind of the rules of the of the interview and and a indication that you won't be a good fit for the house and you'll be heading back to your so i walk into this thing all nervous that i'm about to get like you know um accosted by like drill sergeants and that that wasn't the experience i had at all and um every person i tell that story to that's been on an interview to the south shore house they like don't believe me like I walked in. I had a very pleasant experience, a very pleasant conversation with these guys. Um, you know that that doesn't mean that they didn't draw a very a very uh, strong line in the sand of of what the expectations would be and, and how I was expected to behave, act, and carry myself in the setting. And um, they did, and I accepted, and I became a resident there. I was the youngest person in the house as the cutoff age was 22 years of age. Um, It was very, very militant towards um, 12-step fellowship attendance, adhering to the uh, norms and rules of the 12-step fellowships. You join a group, you get a sponsor, you get active in your group, you get a job in your group, you go on commitments with your group, you carry a message, Um, you know, you take the cotton out of your ears and you put it in your mouth. You know, you got two ears and one month. that means you got to listen twice as much as you talk. Matter of fact, you got nothing to say, don't say nothing, just listen, you know, and it was really old school. And it was really, um, pretty kind of inviting to me because, you know, I had grown up with two, um, parents that, you know, had, had been a member of the same fellowship my whole life. Um, so none of it was foreign or, or scary to me. And I, I really dove in. Um, but I did not authentically in my opinion go through the 12-step process I got a really good education on on what the 12-step process is and what it kind of looks like to do it and experience a change um, from doing it Um, but I didn't actually take the actions myself and as a result of that I feel like I developed this um, this attitude of you know, being so young in, in in this fellowship and having gone through what I put myself through at such a young age that I owed it to myself to make sure I'm having fun and having a good time and living life to its fullest, which by themselves aren't necessarily bad, um, you know, qualities to live by or a bad weather vane. Um, but when that is all that is driving you and you have alcoholism and other you know um, co-occurring mental health disorders without doing some real work on myself um, those qualities are pretty dangerous and I began living a very I guess you know heathenistic selfish self-centered lifestyle where you know at any given time I was you know still obsessed with how I felt and you know my comfort level and oh that's uncomfortable i'm going to avoid that and i somehow managed to stay sober for just shy of nine years but every couple of years if you took a look at my life i was experiencing consequences um that mirrored the consequences of somebody still an active addiction um you know what that looked like was um you know, driving driving a good girl away from me that I had been in a relationship with for a couple of years or deciding to leave her on a whim, Um, you know, a, a, a girl that, you know, um, I'd be stupid to not still be with and, and be married to today, you know, uh, type of girl you bring home to mom and dad, you know, and, and I had three of those relationships uh during that period and each one. Um, ended pre- pretty similarly in the sense of like, you know, unexplainable, uh, calamity breaking out in the relationship that didn't, you know, necessarily need to happen as a result of how I, you know, how I was. And, and of course I didn't see it at the time. I thought it was them and their fault and her fault and his fault and this fault. And, you know, I couldn't see that I was the common denominator in every situation, um, and then that, you know, that theme of of kind of pulling the walls down on my relationships, um, it was the same in any type of career job I had, uh, any type of living situation I was in with roommates, personal relationships, how it even reflected in, um, you know, what, what home group I was a member of and attending weekly um, in my 12-step fellowship. And every couple of years, if you took a look at my life, you know, I had a new set of friends, I had a new girlfriend, I was living in a new place, I had a new career job, um, and I couldn't seem throughout my 20s to really hang on to anything. Um, and, you know, was pretty self-destructively selfish and self-centered, um, which ironically, um going through the 12 step process and adhering the principles to your life, ironically eliminates that, you know, from, from a person and and gives a person, uh, you know, second set of options to live by and and avoid those types of consequences in their lives. So things, things I want to go ahead.
1: uh, Jeffrey, I want to stop you here for a second, because we're going to run out of time. And, and some of the key things I wanted you to talk about was, um, you know, this is when you're up until like your early 30s and then somewhere along the way from the 30s till now. Um, I, I just seen the article that you co-funded the North Star Recovery Center. Sure. Co-founded, I should say, not co-funded. Um, yeah. So so let's just get to the part where, where you're now, you must have finally did the 12-step recovery program the correct way. I assume that that is coming somewhere while you're in your 30s. And, yeah,
0: after a and two month,
1: I want to talk about the center in Norwell and all the things you do there.
0: Sure. So, <clears throat> um, eventually, relapsing, um, I found myself very quickly seeking um, a detox bed again because I couldn't. I couldn't find the breaks. I couldn't stop drinking. So I went back to the same detox that I was at nine years prior in, in 2006. It's now 2015. Made the same good decision to go on to further treatment from there, um, this time to Tewksbury, Tewksbury uh, TSS holding. Um, and then from there, I was given an opportunity to go to a 12-step uh, rehab um, called the Plymouth House in Plymouth, New Hampshire, which, um, you know, was was under different ownership at the time back then. And I had an experience to go through the 12-step process authentically and very early on in my sobriety before um, I managed to kind of develop different uh, systems and and different ways of kind of coping with sobriety. There's a saying that I say constantly, it's easier to move wet cement than it is to let it dry. So, you know, while I was still, you know, wet cement, I went through this process and you know, it didn't cure me and turn me into um, a perfect human being from that day forward, but it set me down this new path where I had a new a new degree of of self-awareness and I had some different options in how I would make decisions in life. And as a result of exercising those different options, um not only did I find myself staying sober, but I found myself feeling very differently and living very differently um that decision caused me to leave behind my uh one bedroom apartment and two cats that i had been raising that were practically my kids you know found a home for them my my cousin um took them in and um i went off to sober living and that sober living um i found a, a pretty unique dynamic where the house was pretty 50-50 between guys who were stuck in what I had almost spent the last decade of my life being stuck in. And the other half were guys that were really taking the 12 step process seriously, trying to get into healthy habits and routines on a daily basis that would set them up for success. And I, I joined, you know, I joined the right group of people um, and, and very slowly we, we pushed the other element, you know, out of the house as much as we could um, seven months later, I was asked to be a house manager. And in my pri- prior period of sobriety, if somebody had asked me to pick them up at their sober house before a meeting and invite- invited me inside or something, I would have said, God, no, I'm not going in a sober house. I'll probably get bed bugs. No friggin' way. You know, I don't want to see all the dilapidated people and stuff in there. No, thanks. You know, sorry, you got to live there, buddy, but I'm not going in there. <clears throat> And after seven months of of living in one myself and absolutely thriving, um, I um, was asked to be a house manager and ended up, over the course of the next two years, um, helping to open up five additional houses and kind of directed over those houses. And the the reason I bring that up is I found myself, um, you know, me, who was a great self-starter, who, though I made a mess of them all... In my 20s, had no problem creating these these new and exciting and promising career opportunities for myself. Instead, in my 30s, I found myself dialing back, sitting still, and seeing what comes to me. And, you know, I did have a get well job at, you know, at a roofing supply warehouse. So I would have a little bit of money in my pocket, but I was in no rush to get on with my life and go self-start and go create and go, you know, make money and buy a new car and do this and do that. Um, this, this lifestyle of waking up and serving the men in the houses Uh, which I could only do successfully if I'm pushing myself and driving myself to be the best power of example that I can be to these men. Um, you know, it wouldn't have worked out if I, if I didn't, um, operate that way. And and this new lifestyle of every waking moment of my day being about serving other people, um, it it really took a hold of me and it led me down this path, um, you know, to where I now am, am co-owner of a, you know, of a treatment center in Norwell, um, from the sober living, you know, and being out in the community and being at community events and speaking and, and doing different things, um, people started to offer me jobs, and I was blown away by, um, you know, what what they were willing to to pay, you know, a guy like me that just is doing what I love. And you know, I took a job at a center called Brook Recovery in in uh, Abington, and um you know moved out of the house found out I was going to be a father uh, unexpectedly and you know thought you know gee I probably should move out and I probably should get an apartment and I probably should you know start to create a life so this you know child will, will have a, a good you know good environment <clears throat> so I did um and you know the the center in Abington really took off and I was one of the first hires so um you know my uh being involved from the ground up, you know, startup aspect of it uh, led me into a very good position very quickly where I was able to provide for my son and and create, you know, good conditions for for myself. Um, And then from there, um, you know, kind of just realizing that, you know, that I was at the ceiling where I was and, and wanting to really make a career out of this and, um, also, you know, I don't want to speak negatively, but, you know, seeing, seeing some of the elements that were there in the beginning not quite be there uh, anymore, you know, and not in some, you know, harmful way, but just in a way where, you know, what kind of drew me into the company was starting to kind of change and shift into something else. Um, an opportunity pre- presented itself where I could go kind of do what I had done um and, and create a new center and and bring you know bring the elements that are important to me to the table there um, and, and that was of value um to the other founders um, and so you know off to Southborough you know I went on a daily basis to um you know to create um, a new center and um you know with with that Center and and every place that I've kind of, worked out and, and poured um you know poured my heart into um you know having that transformative um element you know that's made possible um through the 12 steps as I experienced them having that element there um is is something that um you know is is um at a loss for words it's uh you know, it's got to be there or I'm, or I'm not at the table, you know, and, and at, at North Star was, you know, developing, uh, you know, a, a parallel to the clinical track, a 12-step track that was pretty similar to what I experienced in, in my, you know, early sobriety. Um, and, you know, since then and, and coming into the, the opportunity to open refresh in Norwell, um, you know, I've, I've had a, um, uh, an understanding developed that you know the 12 steps aren't the only way for somebody to experience um, the transformative experience that I experienced, not to say the word experience five times in a row. but um, you know there's there's other paths and there's other methods. And you know, I had always heard people say that, but I had never, you know, it took me time of working working in the field and seeing examples and seeing cases. To really develop an understanding that you know that that's very true, and that for me to be you know directing or managing or owning a center um, that doesn't have a diverse offering of um, you know these different transformative modalities, I'm really selling the people that are that are coming to these centers short, you know, and trying to cram people down you know a, a narrow hallway that that necessarily don't need to be down that hallway um you know that i'm doing a disservice so um refresh is really all about having a diverse offering of of different um transformative paths from you know studying reiki to yoga to um you know crystal energy and sound healing um you know these are things that have formative data behind it um, and plenty of experience of of people um, experiencing remarkable things as a result of them. So,
1: yeah, I think if you
0: open that, up the minds of people to all these other options,
1: I think that's a good reason why it, it's so successful. And you've been open
0: now for like three months. Is that right? We uh, we received our license through um, through the state in, on April twelfth, and. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we um, we passed our um, Joint Commission accreditation inspection, which is a national accreditation agency. Which uh, we're not, not required to have, um, but you know, having a, a strong principle of wanting to be of the highest quality of care, we can. You know, we we chose to subject ourselves to that scrutiny and and achieve that accreditation. Uh, so we're we're really happy about that as well.
1: So if it's a daytime event, do the, the same people come every day or is it a, some people come one day a week or do they usually, is the idea to come five days to a week?
0: Um, that's a great question because it, it leads me into the thought of of another very important um, ideal in refresh. And, and that is that um, everyone is bringing something different to the table in terms of, you know, not just their substance use problem, but their co-occurring, you know, mental health, their, the lives they lived, the lives they're living, um, you know, their circumstances and, and different things. Um, so we we don't really have kind of a cookie cutter presentation of services. Um, instead, when somebody presents themselves, um, you know, with interest, we, 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 we approach things at a very individualized level, and, and we really get to know, you know, who this person is and, and what their needs are, um, you know, before presenting a treatment plan. Um, some of the options, just to mention them, you know, we, we do have a day program that meets Monday through Friday from 9 to 3. Um, that is the highest highest offering of care that we offer. Um, it's recommended that people spend anywhere from, you know, 2 to eight weeks, you know, in that level of care. Um, But again, that's going to be dictated by, um, you know, what their profile looks at in terms of need and, and, you know, lifestyle and circumstance. Some people have families and have careers that won't allow them to do that, but they still need, um, you know, some, some time and attention. So for that reason, we have an evening program, which also serves as a step down from somebody who has done day for a while and, found themselves you know back in the workforce again or you know their uh, leave of absence medical leave is is coming to an end and, and you know want some support while they transition back into the workforce um you know we have an evening program that meets five nights a week from 6 p.m to 9 p.m um you know we hope a, a client will spend you know Ninety days or more, you know, in some capacity, being being involved with us, and during that time, <clears throat> we really hope that we can present enough on the holistic side of things, and in, in conjunction with the evidence based clinical, um, that they can find something that that really takes a hold of them, and, and that they can bring forward with them into the rest of their lives. So this must make
1: you feel pretty good now that you're you're able to turn it around and. You look back at yourself when you were nineteen or seventeen, and all of a sudden you see yourself doing this. And sometimes you must feel that it's almost unbelievable that you've that you're now the guy who's, who's who's helping the the guys who are like
0: you or the women who were
1: like you back in
0: the day, right? It really is, and what a great motivator to kind of keep me on my toes and keep me as as fit, um, you know, mentally and spiritually as I can because <clears throat> i don't i don't want to lose this and you know we see a lot of examples of, of people uh, neglecting their own health and and um you know losing what they have and and you know harming other people in the process um but it's funny you touch on you know where i'm at now and coming full circle and you you've mentioned the uh, patriot ledger article a few times and i'm not going to say his name because i don't want to a HIPAA lawsuit on my hands but um you would ask me about kind of my first drink and my first drinking experience. And, um, a friend of mine from that period of time who remained, um, in my life, um, you know, for the rest of my life up until, you know, today, um, saw what I was doing through social media and reached out to me for help. And I mentioned in that Patriot Ledger, Ledger article, how cool it would be if, you know, if I could help somebody in my, you know, from my upbringing, just, you know, even one person, how, how just unreal that would be to me. Um, And, and he's doing great now. And, um, you know, I got to, I got to experience that and and he got to see through me that, um, you know, just because you lived your life a certain way for as long and for however long you have, um, you know, there's, there's no age limit or, you know, there's no cutoff on, um, you know, having a renewal and doing something differently and and changing, you know, changing your narrative and changing uh, the way your future is going to be or the way your family's future is going to be. I think that's That's great.
1: Yeah. And in your case, you've got more years ahead of you than you have behind you. So you're 38 years old. Good luck. You'll be live to your nineties. And so think about all the the help you can do going forward. Yeah. Um, Well, Jeff, I could tell you that, um, you have quite an interesting story, and we got the whole story. Is I think we didn't get the you know we we got ninety percent of it, but yeah. get the gist of the idea of what your life was like in the beginning and how you turned it around. And the name of our show is Courage to Hope. And certainly anybody listening who's uh, hasn't gone through detox yet, or who would like to get involved, you know, and try to turn their life around, you've given them plenty of hope. And you're taking a lot of courage to go to that South Shore place where you thought it was going to be a militant ad- advice and it turned out that's that was the key moment because you 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 knew that's what you needed that was what's key that's you know you that's what you needed and so you, yeah. you took the, the personal good advice instead of letting them fear you out of it
0: and, I was grateful people people taught me pretty early on that just outside of my comfort zone is everything I could ever want you know. Some, sometimes it's hard to push myself outside of the comfort zone and I need other people to to do that, you know?
1: All right. Is there a phone number for refresh recovery or how does one get a hold of you to, to get, to get, get involved?
0: There is um, our admissions line, which, which, um, you know, I, I couldn't imagine um, doing this and not being on the other end of the phone when somebody calls. So um, I answer the majority of the admissions calls um, the, the admissions line is 888 655 1915. Our website is refreshrecoverycenters, plural, dot com. Um, You can Google Refresh Recovery Patriot Ledger to read the ledger piece. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram under Refresh Recovery Centers. Um, my name is Jeff Chasen. Um, feel free to connect with me on my socials. I spend a lot of time out at community events and doing different things and creating content. Not to say, you know, look at me, look at this great stuff I'm doing, but hopefully to inspire other people to get out and do the same thing. Um, you know, if if people don't see other people doing, you know, doing the, the good work out there, they're not they're not gonna be inspired to do it themselves. So You'll see that throughout throughout my social media. And yes, I am almost 40 and create TikTok content. And you can find me on TikTok at uh, Chasing Moments.
1: And we want to thank you for your time today. And this is uh, Tony LaGreca. And this is The Courage to Hope. And we'll be back next week at the same time. And thank you very much, Jeffrey. Thank you so much.